Hello and welcome to another exciting, and I think you already guessed, it's, uh, what is it? It's um, a jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I am your host, still the host of this show. They tried to replace me, but it turns out they can't because there is no they. It's only me, Daniel Lobel. And boy, it's a great episode for you today. I have Colt Cabana on the show today. Now, I don't know much about wrestling, and I talk about that too in the show. I, I and he could he could be the biggest wrestler in the world for all I know, uh, but uh, I do know this: he was in the WWE, which seems pretty impressive to me. And uh, it turns out our stories have a lot in common because, uh, well, you know what? You'll hear all about it. But first, I did tell you I had another big announcement after I talked about the Jeep last week. I kind of teased it, um, and uh, I bring in none other. Then, my one and only, thank God, beautiful, amazing wife, Kylie Orlo Bell. You may know her from her articles, or you may not know her, but now you're going to hear her beautiful voice. Kylie, how are you? I'm good. First time on the show, I think. No, I think I had you on once before, like two years ago. Okay. Well, didn't go well. Didn't go well. The reviews. <laughs> Did were... I get cut out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The reviews were terrible. No, I'm kidding. It's great to have you here, and thank you for being on with me. Isn't it weird to like talk to me in this dynamic instead of just normally? Yeah, because I know people are listening. Hopefully, I mean, I know you have thousands of people listening, but the way you say that, it sounds like like you like there aren't thousands of people. There no, really there are. are. There, there are. Really are. But the way you're like, there are thousands of people, but there really are thousands of people. I just people naturally listening. sound sarcastic. <laughs> All right, that's it. You're off the show. <laughs> we gave her a chance, folks. Sarcastic Sarkiley. Well, anyway, um, so what's new? We got a Jeep. What else? <laughs> we're having a baby. I thought we'd tell, you know, we're actually announcing this to the podcast audience before we tell anybody in our, in our actual life. Not that you guys aren't in my life, but you're not, you know that. It's not on Facebook or anything. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to let you guys know, cause you were very important to Danny and to me and you keep us going and Danny always read your letters to me and they're very sweet and heartfelt. And so thank you very much. And I know you, you were with us when we were just dating and Danny had depression issues and then Danny was scared to marry me and then he loved marrying me and now we're having a baby. So and I was really scared cool. to have a baby. And how many times have <laughs> I talked on the show to people like, should I have a baby? Like people who've had kids. I remember like going way back to Reese Darby. How many years ago was that? Four? Something like that. When I was like, so should I be a dad? Like I, I've always been scared of it. And how did he reply? Nah. No, he said, no. yeah. Go, there, yeah. There, there, there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm excited about it. It's definitely scared the hell out of me for a long time. So I, I did put it off for a long time, but I feel the time is right. And I'm, we did plan to do this. So I'm glad we did. And I'm excited for, you know, God willing, a healthy baby we don't know the gender or the sex uh interchangeable terms or the race <laughs> for that matter hopefully i think it's jewish and white um and uh it's due in october god willing so we're very very blessed and glad to share this with you you want to plug anything the baby <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Go so, check me out online, I guess. <laughs> what is it like being married to me? Tell the folks out there. If it's no good, I'll edit it the out. The worst. Uh, no, it's the best. And you're going to be a great father. You're a great dad to our dogs and our chickens and our tortoise. Um, you're just going to be the best. So I'm not worried at all. Are you going to start calling me daddy? Because that could be weird, I already call right? you daddy because to the of, dogs. of the dogs. Yeah. But what if, like, in general, like, do we want to be one of those couples where the We're girl's always like, those couples, hey, daddy, are yeah. you going to say it with, like, a little bit of, like, a, or is it going to be like, hey, daddy? <laughs> like a gay man or a Latino woman? Uh, hey, daddy. Hey, daddy. <laughs> hey, dad. <laughs> Pretty weird. Pretty weird that you're going to be a mom, huh? Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> it's, it's a really weird thing, and I feel so young. I'm only 30, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my mom had kids when she was 22. So um, we're not that young. We are just we just took a while to grow up. I don't think we've fully grown up yet, have we? No. No one ever grows up. We're all just kids. I was thinking about that today when I was driving. I'm like, is my kid going to have, like, a mature dad or is my kid gonna have like a fun dad i don't even know what kind of dad i'm gonna be like well my only my only hope and my only fear is that you get just a little bit of robin williams and mrs doubtfire but not the fool <laughs> where i come home and you're dancing and there's a bunch of petting zoo animals everywhere and i go daniel the whole I time <laughs> the whole time the whole time I don't want to be that wife, um, but a little bit of fun in you, yeah. Oh, no, look at this. <laughs> I, I'll get them out. Please, wait. <laughs> oh, please, come on. No. Man, she she was uptight in that film, I tell you. Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah. No, no, Sally I Field. know who you meant. Mrs. Forrest Gump. Uh, you know that movie is where I learned about divorce? Like, I didn't know divorce existed until I saw that movie, and my I remember I was, like, so heartbroken. I was so heartbroken. I'm like, so wait, I remember going to like my parents and being like, is there going to be another one where they get back together? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, but they left it like where they're still not in love anymore. Like they didn't. It's a sad ending. I mean, he gets the TV deal in the local PBS, which isn't even that great. A lot of people can just walk in and do that. It's a weird show too, where he's just got little dinosaur toys. How do you survive in San Francisco on that salary? Oh, hello. Children. Oh no, the dinosaur toy guy was the one that they canceled. Yeah. 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 Oh hello. Did your mommy and daddy used to love each other too? Oh no, not anymore. Did one of them become uh, secretly uh, a um, a drag queen and move into the house and and start heating up food and light their fake breasts on fire? Oh, what else happened in that movie? What have I? <laughs> Just to whip cream movie. vase, the fat Asian Oh, boys. <laughs> it was run by Fruity. That was a good movie. It was, it was quite good and quite it, weird. It made me so sad. I was like, I, I remember I was just so shocked that people could stop loving each other. And I was like, I asked my parents, I'm like, well, are you guys going to ever stop loving each other? And they're like, well, we hope not. I'm like, okay, good. Hmm. You better not. I didn't know. You you come from a divorce home. so Yeah, I, I knew. It was way worse than that movie. <laughs> It was worse in the movie than no, it was. worse than the movie. My dad didn't didn't dress up in drag. Yeah, he should have. <laughs> um, no, but I'm very excited and excited to share this with all of you. And I think that's it. I mean, <laughs> this is a pretty big milestone. Yeah, the, ad um, the adventure begins. My baby kicks all the time. 
and it feels like an alien inside of me. Does it? Does it ever hiss? It's very active. <laughs> I'm gonna be gone for the next month in Edinburgh. You're gonna have friends here, so you won't be all alone. But you know. Um. Yeah. They they can't replace you though. I'm sad, but. You will go to Edinburgh. I will be in sweltering 95 degree heat and you will be in the rain um, and you'll spend time with your grandma. And I'll be dressing in drag going, oh, hello, dearies. <laughs> and you will do wonderful and you'll come back a big, big star. Because that's how it works, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it's worked up until now. <laughs> now either way, uh, you're going to be a great dad. I wouldn't worry about it. Well, I was telling my friend Genevieve on the phone today, I'm like, She's like, are you still excited about the baby? <laughs> I'm like, well, I go back and forth mostly yes, but sometimes I just get really freaked out. And she's like, well, I'm super excited about it. I'm like, oh, well, you know, you don't have to do anything, you know? <laughs> so she, yeah. But but what were you going to say? You know? It's much easier for women to be excited because <laughs> they can, like, visualize the baby, but men aren't. I mean, hopefully they get excited after the birth, but men are very visual. <laughs> they need to see the baby to love it. I guess. Well, what I said to her is I said, I couldn't imagine doing it with anybody except for Kylie. Like, not that I'm, like, you know, imagining other women to do it with. But, like, I never wanted to have kids for, you know, most of my life. And I never wanted to get married. It wasn't until you came along that I even considered getting married and then kind of wanted to get married and then did want to get married and then got married, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I was still like, ah, not so crazy about the idea of having kids. Well, we'll see what happens. And then I was thinking, maybe I'll want kids. And then kind of want kids, sort of want kids. Until I finally was like, well, yeah, with you, I I do want kids. Because I guess that's because I love you so much. It's like, uh, I want to, I feel like a half me, half you might not be the worst creature to roam the planet, you know? (laughs) Great way to describe it. <laughs> this kid's gonna listen back one day. <laughs> but seriously, I thought about it. I said I can't do this with anybody else, and I was, that's what I was telling Genevieve. Like, only because of you do I not feel freaked out, and only because of you do I feel excited. And yes, I still feel a little freaked out, to be quite honest, every now and then. But overwhelmingly, I'm excited about it, and I I can't imagine ever getting to that point with anybody else. No. Except this one other girl. Uh, Lisa. No. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it for the big news. It's our four-year wedding anniversary as well, so can that's we, kind of cute. Maybe we should use this to manipulate people and be like, donate now. We need it more than ever. We don't have a crib. Uh, we don't have diapers. We have nothing. No. Why do I call it manipulating people and everybody else calls it crowdsourcing? <laughs> Just send your blessings. That's all we need. I mean, donation would be sweet, though. Go to moderndayphilosophers.net. Would be would be good to have some income. Ah, oh, jeez. We have so some. Scared. In, we have some income. Yeah, some. we're good. Well, if you say we're good, nobody's gonna want to donate. We're terrible. I'm sorry. We're well, terrible. I mean, you don't want to make people feel too bad either. We're neutral. We have Jeep payments, and now we're gonna have kid payments too. Yeah. I mean, that's somewhere in the middle, right? We're middle class. We're middle class America. Mm-hmm. In, the, we, in one of the most expensive cities in in in. The U.S. We used to really struggle when this podcast first started. Like, I didn't know how we were going to pay the rent every month. Now I know how we're going to pay it. Credit card. But uh, <laughs> Lots and lots of debt. Yeah. Well, we'll get there in the end. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. We'll get there in the Somehow, end. Somehow, Daddy, we'll get there. 
<laughs> Daddy. Yes, we will. We'll get there. Well, that's it. All right, guys. Colt Cabana on the show today. Amazing guy. Former WWE wrestler. What more do you need to know? I'll be in Edinburgh at the festival. So will he. I'll plug both of our venues and where to go at the end of the episode. So you don't want to miss that. But for now, without further ado, of course, except for what, Kylie? The intro song. Colt Cabana, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people. Each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers. And now here's Daniel LaBelle. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. It's good. Right in your home. Right in my temporary home. Do you, I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but I, you wouldn't know this, but I lived right next door to you. Really? When, when was that? Uh, maybe three years ago. All right. 25 Merchment. Wow. Or should we not say your address, even though this, when this no, gets this out, is you fine. Won't, <laughs> this won't be out. You'll fully, be out of the Skyland. Yeah. yeah. I'm fully confident that this is a, this is a safe move. Okay, good, okay. good, good. So I know you from doing the Edinburgh Fringe last year, and you were kind enough to have me on your show again this year and last year. And as I've admitted to you guiltily, I don't know much about wrestling, but I do know that you're a, a very funny and talented guy. Oh, so thank you. I wanted to have you on in that respect. And also, um, it's pretty cool that there is a wrestler who has Jewish star merchandise to me. Is that, <laughs> most importantly... Yeah, I remember when I was in the I was in the WWE. I wrestled there as Scotty Goldman. That was my wrestling name there. And you know, the quote was, "Well, Vince McMahon asked me if I was Jewish." You know, we had this meeting, mm -hmm. and I go, "He goes, are you are you really Jewish?" And I go, "I mean, I you know, I am, but I'm not like a super Jew." And that was the only thing that made him laugh in our meeting. <laughs> for those of you who don't know Vince McMahon, he's just like. I don't know if Mr. Burns was on steroids, right? Like, so <laughs> he's just, it's very intimidating. And I got, I got a laugh out of him with that. But I just remember they had a meeting, Vince McMahon and everybody else in the WWE quote unquote creative world. And they had brought me up from the minor leagues or whatever it was. And they were like, oh, Cabana, you know, like, oh, we heard he's Jewish. All right, okay, well then let's call him something Jewish. We'll call him Scotty Goldman. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember thinking like, all right, you know, wrestling was big very big in israel uh in the mid to late 80s with the world-class championship wrestling there's a group down in texas who used to somehow a channel in israel got their uh their tv feed and these the von erics are the wrestlers and they became these huge sensations in israel and still are to this day although there was five sons and four of them are now passed away oh. but i was like all right like yeah like maybe we could sell star david yamakas and like Maybe I won't be big in America, but in Israel, I'll be a big hit, the old Scotty Goldman character. And it wasn't. And so long uh -huh. story boring. Now, right, as Colt Cabana, Cabana, I have a Star of David t-shirt. So where, what is the name Colt Cabana? Where does that come from? Oh, my, my last name is Colton. Uh-huh. And uh yeah, I, I want I people always called me Colt, so it was a nickname. I always thought it was a cool first name. Uh, and now, you know, nowadays that's a pretty common first name, I think. Colt? Yeah. Okay. I've never heard it, but you've never heard it. There was a there was a quarterback named Colts, um, Colt McCoy for the Colts for the Colts. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then 
I tried out a bunch of last names and Cabana was the one that stuck. And I think it's because of the song, Copacabana. Yeah. Yeah. So Copacabana, Colt Cabana. I, I mean, I think Plus. I, what's the word? I, uh, subliminally, like, it just felt like it fit. So how long were you, Scotty Goldman? Well, I was in WWE for, two, for a little under two years. Mm-hmm. And I got signed in April of 2007. And then I think in August of 2008, they moved me to SmackDown called me scotty goldman and then february 2009 they fired me okay. so so august to, to february so let's go back let's yeah. go back back where where did you grow up this deerfield illinois okay do you know uh, your do you know your illinois jewish suburbs i n- no, but there are a lot of jews in illinois right because chicago and because chicago skokie's the big one yeah yeah um which is skokie's halfway between deerfield and the city um skokie's really the first suburb out one of the first suburbs outside of the city uh-huh. and i yeah deerfield is it's on a group of nicer middle upper class uh places outside of chicago called the north shore so what do your folks do so my father's in the schmott the business <laughs> uh or, and you said you weren't that jewish <laughs> <laughs> he, he he was in the schmott the business he's uh-huh. not he's not retired but for yeah, I don't know, 35 years. My grand, you know, my grandparents also were in the clothing industry. Uh-huh. Um and it's kind of very very weird that I became a professional wrestler, but I also have parts and I deal with uh merchandise and and t-shirts. Yes, which are Schmatas. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to Chicago, you'll see me on billboards for 1-hour tees for the past probably 6 or 7 years. Wow. I'm all over the city promoting the one hour tees billboards uh-huh. uh so my father was a traveling clothing salesman yeah and uh, you are too kind of yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh my mother was a teacher okay what did she teach? yeah i uh, just just shit, elementary yeah. yeah i don't i think it was one of those <laughs> the way, ah, this and that. i don't think she was very passionate about it uh, no yeah i think it was a job uh-huh um I told someone else the other day, like, I, I think she was, I think she was one of the mean teachers where just, she was one of those people. Like, I don't think she had a love for, for teaching just like she instilled on me and my brother and which we never did was have something secure, have a secure job. You know, like you don't, it's so weird. Cause we're both in the arts, my brother and I, what does he do? Uh, he's an animator. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is it? Where does he work? Uh, family guys, the director for family guys. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Um, he lives in Los Angeles and yeah but she it was something that had a pension at the end uh had stability and i think that's what she i don't know if she wanted but society told her that she needed it and yeah. so she got it okay so it's just you and your brother then mm-hmm. and uh, are you guys still close it's we i don't know if, i don't know if you hear a lot of these talking to everybody but we are close but we really don't talk that much no but when we see because i mean i'm in chicago he's in l.a it's kind of funny like i always like question my communication habits a little bit but we have the same communication habits of like not bothering to text anyone or whatever yeah and so you know like we don't text each other every day or every month even Uh and sometimes we'll have a little back and forth but when we see each other it's just like old times so you were were you close as kids then yeah he was he was three and a half years older than me so when i was a freshman in high school he had graduated and became a freshman in college so and then right when he graduated college he moved right out to la to pursue uh, animation okay so i guess from you know from 13 or 14 on 
he wasn't around. So, so why wrestling for you? Yeah, I, lo I loved professional wrestling. I was obsessed with professional wrestling. Uh -huh. My father was watching it casually, and I just so happened to be watching it. So, like, his obsession isn't like mine, or he doesn't have an obsession. I don't. He does. Yeah. He knows some of the guys. You know, maybe him and his friends went as a joke at, at, when they were kids. I don't even think so. Or just, you know, I I think it's just when Hulk Hogan started becoming a phenomenon. He was just like, oh, I'll check out this Hulk Hogan guy, uh -huh. right? Which is 1984, which is when I was four and when I first saw it. So I became obsessed with it. Yeah, I loved sport and I loved, um, you know, we're uh, we're the generation of uh, He-Man and GoBots and mm -hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then also starting lineup characters and the Chicago Cubs. So like to me wrestling and i you know i only put this together in my older years but that's it was just the culmination <laughs> it was the combination of all, all of that so like you know it's, it's and it's, it's tacky to say they, they do call wrestling sports entertainment and it is it's sport and entertainment mm -hmm. and it was like everything i needed in one package did you have a, a favorite wrestler growing up no which i don't know if it's weird or not i always yeah, I always just say, like, anyone who was wrestling was cool. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I guess I liked Hulk Hogan and Junkyard Dog. Uh, I also, in Mr. Perfect, I just liked everyone. I thought everyone was really cool. It was never, it's it's very odd because wrestling is bad versus good. But for me, it was just like, I just wanted to watch it and watch the storylines. I was never someone who really, like, booed somebody. Mm -hmm. I thought they were all superstars. I remember my father taking me to the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. And, uh... And I remember Mr. Fuji was a bad guy and um, everyone all around us was like yelling. And I was like seven or eight. And I remember like I was yelling stuff at him and like I was getting away with it. Uh -huh. And then I was just like, oh my God, like my dad doesn't care if I yell. And I was like, I hate you, Fuji. Like you suck, Mr. Fuji. And my dad was kind of encouraging it. I was like, oh great. And then I remember yelling, fuck you, Fuji. And like my dad was like, nope. And then he dragged me out of there. <laughs> but... It wasn't my hatred for Mr. Fuji, right? It was. I think it was the idea, like, I what can I get the, away the with? The excitement, yeah, yeah, being part of something like that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there was no favorites for me. I, to me, I just thought anyone who was out there wrestling was yeah. the coolest, and I wanted to be like any of them, even the scrubs. Like the guy that loses every match, yeah. you wouldn't know, but like there's a guy, like back in the day, they had like all the superstars, and then they the superstars couldn't lose in the superstars because then they wouldn't be superstars, yeah. so they needed people to lose. And even those people, I was like, wow, they're wrestlers. That's, yeah, so you were hooked. Mm. And uh, when did you start doing it? Um, I wanted to do it in high school. My parents wouldn't let me. So the, the theme of the Jewish parents is kind of fun, I think, okay. with this, right? And now looking back, there's so many people starting in wrestling. And there I was back in the day at 13, 14, 15 years old. It's much like stand-up comedy, uh, probably like you, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> going, <laughs> going to the... Yeah, you to get, the clubs at a young age it's, yeah totally resonating with me yeah like, you know you see something and you're like that's it I mm -hmm. gotta do this. and yeah my parents would not let me and i remember there was a, a show like 20 minutes i wanted to go see away from me and it was in a town called waukegan which it's fine but it's a little maybe not as many it's not as north showery or as jewish suburby as as deerfield yeah my parents were like you are absolutely not allowed to drive to waukegan i was 16 years old you know i wanted to see king kong bundy wrestling uh -huh. waukegan it was a big deal and um so she was like you're not going to lamont or wherever to train to be a wrestler and then she said you can't be a wrestler until you graduate college um, which bummed me out big time because I knew all I wanted to do was be a professional wrestler. Instead of uh, going and training to be a wrestler, I went to college and I played college football as a walk-on because I knew uh, on my wrestling resume, I wanted to say uh, 
college football player. I heard that was a big deal when they when the announcers talk about the wrestlers, they'll talk about their college athletics. Okay, yeah. And I played one year and I absolutely hated it. And I was 18. And so after the year of football, I said, Mom, I'm a grown-up. I'm gonna be a wrestler. And she said, All right, as long as you finish your school. You know, if you don't drop out of school, you know, you can wrestle. And I used my bar mitzvah money to pay for my wrestling, which was two thousand dollars. Cool. So I took you did those. Well. Yeah. It was a good <laughs> I cleaned up a little. <laughs> it Popular was Popular kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, those bonds had uh matured. Had they matured yeah. <laughs> after six years or whatever it was. And yeah. um yeah, it was two thousand dollars. It was in Chicago, it was in a little storefront. It was called the Steel Domain. Just two dudes who were from the city had opened up a school. Um, they were in shape, they looked the part, you know, uh, they looked like wrestlers. So I was like, okay. And uh, yeah, and I went and I trained with them the spring of 1999. Um, and then I thought I was just going to go back to college and then come back the next summer. Yeah. But I actually started wrestling within that time. And so for my sophomore year of college, while because I went to Western Michigan University, which is about two and a half hours away from where I lived or three hours. Okay. So what happened was I started wrestling on the weekends while I was going to college. Yeah. And eventually I had to change my schedule, you know, to only do, taking classes you know monday tuesday wednesday thursday or whatever it might be because i was traveling literally all over the midwest wow. uh for 20 10 bucks you know 15 bucks whatever it was but you're getting that experience in and because and, and and when did you start feeling like i can do this i'm really i'm really pretty good there's a lot of different times where that happened and i'll tell this when i teach seminars with kids it's like you need to set small little goals and then when you achieve them you'll get that excitement as opposed to just being like it's wwe or nothing because either that's going to take 10 years or 15 years or it's not going to happen right that's like the best advice ever i wish somebody <laughs> would have told me that is that right as a comic starting out like like ex be excited for the small goals. yeah man that's yeah. that's brilliant because yeah. it took me like 15 years to to come to terms with that one <laughs> i wish somebody would have told me right right from the start no and nobody had taught me that but i i, I never thought i'd be a wwe wrestler because of the way i looked and i because i didn't look like the way what they looked like so i just you know i i, I want to have my first match you, i have it exciting yeah i want to you know i want to try i want to get on a someone to fly me on an airplane happened yeah that was exciting you know i want to wrestle this guy happen that those kind of little things that's really really good advice i think for anybody mm -hmm. you know because it's those steps it's those little steps that you got to go for it otherwise you have these ridiculous goals of like i'm going to go from zero to 60 or whatever and you just can't and you can't that's what chops are about right yeah i, I know it's stupid the ten thousand hours like i don't usually say that but it's it's so true yeah. You know, I, I tell someone, like, if a wrestler's asking me, I go, they're like, well, what advice? I go, just go have 200 more matches. I go, you mm -hmm. need 200 more matches yesterday, and then you'll get good. There's nothing I could say that will help you. The experience will help you. Was there a part of you at the time that had low self-esteem that thought, I can't do this? Or was it completely about the fact you didn't think you looked the part? or Oh, for WWE? Yeah. Well, see, that didn't depress me that I couldn't. I just accepted it. Mm -hmm. that i don't look like and never would and don't want to take steroids i'm not a drug guy i don't drink i don't mm -hmm. smoke i don't do anything and i just i remember asking my trainer like am i gonna have to take steroids and i was probably 20 at the time or 19 he's like yeah like if you want to make it you probably will and i just remember thinking to myself like all right i've got you know at least for the next five years or so i don't have to take steroids 
Mm-hmm. And then I grew into myself and who I was and understood. And at 24, 25, I was making a living as a wrestler. And what is a living as a wrestler? Uh, I, when I stopped my full-time job as a teaching assistant mm-hmm. to do wrestling full-time, I was making about uh, $850 a month. So to me, yeah. to me, I could make a living on that. <laughs> That's something. That's enough as an artist. That's what I felt, yeah. Yeah, you went from working in your mom's side of the business right your dad's side (laughs) yeah i didn't even think about that well she was pressuring me to get it she's like that was the so when i graduated college she was like i just wanted to wrestle and live at their house and they're like you have to get a job and Mm -hmm. i was like what job will allow me to have my weekends off and free time and uh working at the school was great yeah um and then after two years i was you know i was working at the school and i was flying to london for the weekend to to wrestle and i was just like and a lot of people think like oh well you must be you know i I think i got 120 to five dollars to fly to london the the plane ticket was 800 dollars that i yeah. you know but the payoff was 125 or something like that yeah but i got to a point where i was like it's too hard there comes that point and that's when you're working the hardest was when you're about to break but you still have the full-time job so when you're about to break means you're getting a lot of work and you're working a lot but then you're also working your daytime job so that's when you become your most tired mm-hmm. and it's the best when you can quit that job and then finally there's a little uh you can breathe a little bit even though now you're making the very least possible for a living you can breathe that you're not working a thousand hours a week um and that you know that's what i did and and so eventually i was able to live off of 850 dollars. i budgeted it all out i said okay i need a hundred dollars a match and fifty dollars in merchandise and I, I need to do that six times you know six times a month and if i could do that great and then you know if i made more then I'd be like, great, I'm now I'll take that money and I'll like plug that into the next month. So if that doesn't happen, then I'm, I'll, I'll average that out, but I would keep on making more and getting better because this is all I was concentrating on. And, um, it just kind of worked its, its way, uh, up the ladder. What I'm hearing here are really all the ingredients for, for a successful person. You're practical minded. Mm. Uh, you had, uh, ambitions that were attainable, right? You were business minded. You, uh, it seems like you were very um you, you weren't excessive with with the way you did with the way you spent or or living outside of your means cheap. i live very cheap yeah and then you your work ethic is sounds phenomenal like you and and doing this in a fantasy world really mm-hmm. right i mean pro wrestling yeah it's just a fantasy world it's not you know whether the wrestling is real or not but just like the idea of like this is what we do for a living it's very silly right um were there moments where you freaked out thinking about that like you're you're going back and forth and uh no i always said that like and luckily you know because my parents i always said that like if this all goes wrong and i lose all my money and i never get booked anymore i can always sleep on their couch and that always was a giant safety net for me that's the missing piece for me I was always like, I'm not going back to that couch. <laughs> but I knew, I knew, I knew if it all went down, I had, I was, you know, no, I wasn't going to be homeless. I, I could always go back to yeah. the couch. Um, but that's good. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly keep, will keep somebody from a, a total anxiety. That was peace out. of mind. That was yeah. peace of mind for me. And I've always, you know, I didn't quit the job until I had money in the bank mm-hmm. and I never went under you know debt wise so i've always been in the green black which one is it red i i i guess i mean yes the red i think i think no the red is bad i know i I don't have no idea i've always been positive in my (laughs) bank account you can tell where i've been (laughs) (laughs) uh 
Yeah, my bank account has always been positive. Yeah, because of the, of that scare too. You know, that's always something that has haunted me. But I've never gone under, so I've always been okay. All right, so let's talk about this big break with the WWE. Sure. So how did this come about? And um, was it something you saw coming? How, well, I, I had been my, all of my friends had been signed to WWE contracts, right? So you know, you work in the circles, and everybody makes themselves better. And I was in that community of people who were really pushing each other, mm-hmm. and on the better shows. And we were becoming these like cult underground wrestling stars, but we were we were the stars. It's the independent wrestling stars. Mm-hmm. We were the stars that, well, you knew those guys weren't good enough or big enough. Sorry, they were good enough. They weren't big enough for WWE. They didn't have the look. So they were on the underground scene. Um, it's very much like comedy, right? It's the underground comedy scene, if you will. It's the under, underground wrestling scene. And a bunch of these people, my friends would get signed and eventually I was doing it so much and I was doing very well and I was traveling to Japan and I was traveling to Europe and, uh, and Mexico and Puerto Rico and I was doing all this great wrestling. Um, my name was just, I was one of the better guys on the underground scene if, you know, not the best, but there's a, a group of us that, you know, there still is only a, a handful of people that can do it for a living mm-hmm. that don't have to have another job that aren't signed by the WWE or one of the big companies and um yeah and so my friends just at the end of the day all of my friends were just like why aren't you signing cabana he's great why aren't you signing cabana he's great and again the people in that company never were like this is the guy we need but what happened was just everyone was like everyone vouched for me Mm -hmm. and so they signed me and i think it was the downfall of my career because nobody was ever we need to have this guy so they weren't like they, there was no stock in me, you know. They weren't right. excited to to push me as a big star. They were like, "Oh, okay, fine, we'll sign the guy." Yeah, that's the tug of war with this stuff. It's like, do you really do you want to push yourself on someone and hopefully get somewhere, or do you want to sit it out and maybe not get anywhere, mm-hmm. but you know, hope that it comes organically? And it's happened afterwards. I, like people they'll be like, "Hey, you have an opportunity to talk to this guy." It's like, "I don't want to." I go, "If he's not a if they don't want me, I don't want to sell myself. Mm-hmm. I really don't. And it was a great lesson that I learned. I know I skipped over a lot of stuff of being fired and stuff, but it was a lesson to learn of like, I don't want to push myself on these people if they don't want me. If they don't, if they're if they don't, if they don't see it, then they're not gonna see it. You know? And if they're gonna see it, then they'll see it eventually, and then I'll be welcomed on board to whatever it is. Whether whether that's you know, specifically wrestling or whatever, whether that's some TV gig or whatever it might or you know. I've had um, development deals and stuff with TV shows and like, you know, just nothing's, nothing's worked out, but it's like, I don't want, I don't want to do it if it's not meant to be, or if that person in charge doesn't like what I'm doing. And the reality is, is it's, you know, I, I've been podcasting for not, not as long as you, but I've been podcasting for eight years now. And the reality is, is like, I'm not trying to sell it to one person to sell me to the world. We just sell it to individual people who like us and that's why we do what we do and that's why where our successes come from yeah well that's a similar story you know i mean i mean that's what i mean i mean with you and i the idea of like we've realized okay we're not trying to sell this to mr media we're trying to sell this to the people who like it. it's the diy approach yeah exactly i i realized at a certain point like nobody's taking me on so i gotta take me on Mm -hmm. you know i had also a similar thing with the, the comic strip live i don't know if you ever heard of the comics I have, live, yeah but when i was oh can i make it i'm i'm a huge wrestler uh sorry i'm a huge comedy fan like yeah i love comedy um so like i'll know the references okay, <laughs> yeah. <cool. Yes. laughs> the comic strip uh for those who don't know out there is like you know a pretty prestigious club in new york and i was a pretty young comedian and i met the owner richie tinkin who's still the owner 
and he's like, I don't know, he's got to be 90 or something. And he started the place, and it's where Eddie Murphy got started and Jerry Seinfeld and Adam Sandler. And so I was like, I want to get into the comic strip. And I met this guy, Richie Tink, and I had a radio gig, and I said, I'll plug the, the comic strip on the radio uh, if you give me some stage time. And he said, yeah, that sounds great. It was a pretty big signal, a pretty big station. So I started running ads for the comic strip, and he started giving me spots. But Richie Tinkin is not the guy who passes comedians at the comic strip. I didn't know this, but it was a guy named Lucian Hold. And it was a pretty big deal to get into the comic strip, and it was prestigious and something you earned, not negotiated. And uh, he hated me right away from the beginning because of that. And As he should. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, he could have been a little more open to what I was doing, I yeah. suppose. But he could have been like, all right, look, the kid didn't know, but now he's here. Let's uh, not try to make him feel uncomfortable every second. But, but I, I mean, he wasn't particularly known for being a nice guy, right. Lucian. And, uh, but, but much like the comics, I think, you know, or much like the wrestlers, the, the comics, police, they police themselves to an, to an extent. Yeah. And so that's what he, this guy was doing, right? He was... Well, there was a guy who quit comedy since, to my knowledge. I know he quit. He might have come back. But there was a guy named Max Lance who had also... He got in legitimately. There were four of us. It was me, Max, this other guy, Dominic Dierkeles, who's gone on to like really big things. And this other guy, Aziz Ansari, I never heard what mm. happened with him. Hopefully he's doing all right. Yeah, I hope. But Max was like really mad that I didn't get in the proper way. And I overheard, he didn't know I overheard him, but I overheard him like on more than one occasion, like saying to Lucian, it's not fair that he's here. Why is he here? It's not fair. He shouldn't have been allowed in. Why can't we just kick him out? There's something called late night, which was like for the developing comics. And they only have a handful at a time. So there were four of us and we'd be there like every night mm. waiting for the show to end so we could get up in front of whoever was left and be funny. Well, in wrestling, there's stuff like, you know, there's uh, people that get signed to WWE like I did from the in, from the underground scene. And then there's the football players that they sign and send to, to WWE who the wrestlers, we don't, you know, for the most part, there's a little chip on our shoulder. A guy like me who spent 10 years gutting it out and then there's a guy who just played football and never wrestled and was also then makes the same amount of money that I have who's been gutting it out for 10 years. Yeah. And the reality is, is like those guys, sometimes they get really good. And, you know, I was on the fence a lot because my gut told me, you know, fuck this guy. But then like my like natural, like real life person was just like, hey, they're just a person like you trying to get a break and this someone just offered them a deal and so they took it. Like, you can't hate them for that. Right. Which is the same thing as just like, you found a way in, can't hate somebody for that. Right. But then there's that comic who's going to be like, I, every fucking night of my life, I've, I've lost money going to the bar to go to an open mic or whatever it might be. That's how I'm, that's how I'm going to make my way in. Yeah. Um, so you were the football player. I was the football yeah. player. Yeah. But also like me, it, it, I was 27 or 26, you know, I was a little older in terms of, you know, what I was doing. I was, I will, I understood a little more. I think I was more mature as an adult as opposed to, you know, maybe if I was 22, I would have been like, I hate all those football players and I'm going to make their life miserable. Yeah. Well, I fired myself from the because <laughs> uh, every few months you get to audition to like be on the real show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every, all those other three guys, they, they did their audition maybe once, maybe twice, and they were in. 
after seven times, I still didn't get in. Lucian was never going to let me in. Mm. So I was like, I got to leave. I got to just leave this place. I can't do this. I oh. couldn't be around that. You know? Right. But getting to the top for you to get to like, which I guess is the equivalent of like Saturday Night Live of wrestling. And then to taste that and then to be fired, what what kind of impact did that have? Yeah. And that's what I tell people when I try to relate it to people. I, I It's exactly what I relate it to. And I say, and I'll tell people like, hey, some of my favorite, like Rob Riggle, you know, and there's a handful of other ones, Jenny Slate. They're amazing. And I love their work. And they were the same idea of like they did, you know, Brooks Whelan. Yeah. Right. So they did one year at Saturday Night Live and were kind of pushed out. And you're like, oh, they weren't the greatest there. And some people could dig on them. But, you know, it, it, it's important just to let, like, not let that define you. And also, like, know that there's going to be work afterwards and that, like, that you love their work. And, of course, like, you know, I think Robert Eagle and Jenny Slater are great examples of that. Uh, and there's a handful of others, too, you know. Um, there's, there's many others. So that's kind of what I, I was. And so, um, you know, when I got fired, I, 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 I'll tell the story sometimes. Like, you know, I put my resume on monster.com, like, I, I was going to continue wrestling, but I didn't know, you know, I'd, I'd reached the top. I'd reached major league baseball. I, I thought wrestling was going to throw me out and uh, it didn't, you know, and I, I did, I took a, a hard DIY approach and I started making documentaries and YouTube shows and the podcast and a lot of it really caught on. And it's crazy that my career was, is, was, and is so much more successful um, fi financially, spiritually, emotionally uh, on my body without being there. And I think I'm very grateful to go there and have such a miserable experience where I know a lot of the rest of us on the scene now, they, they will, if they don't go to WWE, they'll be like, my career was a failure. And I just know. And so they're always trying to work to there. And I, right now I'm not trying to work there, which is interesting. Like I'm not trying to work to get there. I've had it. I know it wasn't for me. You know, I could go, you know, people, have gone back and been more successful but i realized just like i was able to taste it and not like it so now i don't have to strive to be there i could strive just to do the art and the the work that i like and put that out in the world so i was sure i was a little depressed for three months afterwards but i moved on i've really built something for myself um can you talk a little bit about the experience at wwe sure i mean well it's it's because I, I knew the wrestling culture so much so it wasn't that foreign to me and I did, I said to myself, like, it's, and much like the stories maybe of Saturday Night Live, like, you know, you're always walking on eggshells. And the reality is, is Vince McMahon is at the very top and he holds, uh, he, he, everyone is just so fearful of him. And I was like, I'm not going to be. And then I had that meeting. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so scared, right? <laughs> and everyone is, everyone's so job scared because there's nowhere else in the world to work in professional wrestling to make that kind of money, at least at that, you know, 10 years ago and be, and before a there's nowhere else but WWE. That's where you go if you want to make money in professional wrestling. Yeah. Um, now with the independence, it's a little stronger, and there's a company called Japan, New Japan, that's that's employing a lot of Americans. Um, so so there, he has such a chain below him of just yes men, yes men, yes men, yes men, because they're all saying yes to him, whatever he wants. And and he's 75 now. Is you know, he's not as sharp as he was when he was 45 or 50 when he kind of made, you know, Hulk, the Hulk Hogan era and the Ultimate Warriors of the world. Yeah. So it was just, I just hated always having to wear nice clothes, which I still don't know how to wear. And, you know, it's just like, I just, I, I yeah. don't, 
I don't really like authority. I, I just don't. No kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, I and and I had some bad experiences in WWE with with a with a, a trainer, and I had bad experiences in college football with coaches, and I just really hate people who are who have more power than other people who don't use it for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's taught me a lot about how to treat people and how to treat people below me. Uh, and just and I, I do believe like just niceness and positivity just go a long way, and. Um, and a lot of that didn't happen, and a lot of that doesn't happen there too, because it's such like a meat machine of like wrestlers and people trying to appease this god of wrestling, Vince McMahon. So, right. Um, I, yeah, I, I, but it wasn't the worst experience of my life. It made me a better person. I did learn a lot. I, I was there. Like, just imagine. I, I guess maybe like Saturday Night Live is just like, and I know you don't know these names, but just Arn Anderson and Ricky Steamboat and Ted DiBiase, and they're just like all the legends of the '80s are there. And the '90s are there teaching these young wrestlers within the system because they—they're all probably broke. They all need jobs. They yeah. all spend all their money, <laughs> and um, and they're there and they're the most knowledgeable about wrestling. So they're all around, and that's pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know who they are, but I—I I can imagine. Just imagine Henny Youngman and uh, <laughs> Henny Youngman, right? I don't know. <laughs> that's the equivalent. <laughs> uh, oh, do you want? Um, no, I'm trying to think. Of, oh, yeah. So I had a meeting with Vince McMahon. And I told him I liked alternative comedy. And I said, he's like, what do you like? And I'm like, alternative comedy. Like a couple other things, but I really like alternative comedy. I like comedy. I like just weird things about the comedy. You know, I, I have a, an interesting sense of humor. And I, he was like, I don't get it. And I was trying to explain it to him. And he goes, oh, you mean like Jackie Gleason? And I was just like, oh, my God. Because I think I told him my like, kids in the hall and the states and kind of that kind of stuff. And when he said Jackie Gleason, I was like, I'm fucked. <laughs> Because we are not on the same page. That was his. That was his idea of like crazy zany comedy. Yes, he's so who comes to mind when I think of the alt scene. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Where do Where do you think the uh, anti authority stuff comes from in you? It's a. I don't know. It's a great. I don't know. I don't know. I where were to date back to. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm high school. It, I think about like even with your parents, you did comply when they said, "Look, finish college." You listen to them. I mean, yeah, but I, you know, I, maybe it was never having respect for people who were mean to me, which could be a thing, right? Were you bullied a lot as a kid? Yeah, yeah, I was a big kid. Um, I think we're all bullied though. I don't know. I don't know. Are the bullies bullied? Maybe they're bullied at home. I think they're bullied. And I think, yeah, I think they think they're bullied maybe. Yeah. Um, but I was a bigger kid and I was pushed around. Not pushed around. I always stood up for myself. But uh, a lot of names, you know, towards my body and, and the way it looked. So is that what motivated you towards uh, being an athlete? No, I was just I was just an athlete. But you were, you were telling me you were essentially a fat kid, right? Yeah. But so I was still an athlete. You were an athletic just, fat kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, that's, that's which rare. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, shirts and skins was the absolute worst. And it was like every every day at camp and at school, even at school, right? And Risa, it was shirts and skins. And it was the fucking demise of my fucking childhood. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there were teachers that were mean that I had no respect for. And those were the ones I hated. You know, it could be that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well... It's interesting because you said your mom you thought was a mean teacher. 
Yeah, but I only learned that, I think, as I got older. Uh-huh. But maybe it ties in. I'm not sure. I mean, well, you're saying, you know, it, it all comes out of your dislike for mean teachers. And yeah. then years later, you're like, you know, I think my mom was mm. a mean teacher. Mm. There's got to be some connection there, mm, right? Maybe. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> I can put together simple things. But I, I, yeah, I always think I thought she was the nice teacher, though. Yeah. Yeah. So there, maybe there's a little chip on my shoulder where I'm like, I can't believe my mom is the mean teacher. <laughs> I came from a mean teacher. Have you ever played a villain in wrestling? Barely and rarely. Yeah, which is what we call a heel in professional wrestling. A little bit when I started, but for the most part, I'd say for the past 16 or 17 years, I've been a, a good guy, a baby face. Does nobody want to be the heel? No, people love being the heel. They do? I, yeah. And it's, it's, a little, so it's a little easier when you first start to be the heel because it's very hard to be cheered. It's very hard. It's I'll say uh, it's hard. It's easier to make people hate you than to get people to like you. Oh yeah, I mean that. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially yeah. So if you come out of the curtain, it's it's just much easier. And so a lot of people start out as a bad guy, but so, I liked I liked being the good guy. So would you say that it's kind of like a, a cop out for the people who are the, who are the heel? Like they never push themselves to get to that point or to be a, a good guy? Yeah. Well, some people are just great heels. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you should learn both ways. I don't know. It's like theater or something. Like, you should learn both ways, and you should master both ways. So if you ever need it for each situation, you'll be ready. Um, but I just have always liked – I really have always liked being a good guy. And it's funny because I, I wrestle for a kind of a, one of – or I, I'm not the announcer for Ring of Honor, which is, which is on television in America, and we tried – making me a good a bad guy and uh it did not stick <laughs> you know I, I think it's it's weird because of the internet and social media and all this stuff like i'm not gonna start being mean to people on the internet so on yeah. television i'm this bad persona but in real life i'm just me and i just don't i don't think people believed it do you think people have to lean into it in some respect in their life to be a good heel like do you think people who are some of the best good, bad guys are are beautiful people are very sweet yeah and some of the 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 baby faces are are some of the biggest pieces of shit that's <laughs> okay. how it works you know it's interesting i'm surprised that vince didn't cite andy kaufman when you mentioned alternative comedy well his father did not want andy kaufman andy kaufman wanted to do everything at the gar- everything he did in memphis he wanted to do at madison square garden vince mcmahon's father who was the promoter vince mcmahon senior mm-hmm. uh, had no thought it would be the stupidest thing ever and he said i don't want it and then this uh wrestling reporter named bill apter said i've got a friend in memphis jerry lawler i think he'd love to do this with you mm-hmm. he said that to andy kaufman and then they started going down to memphis and doing this so stuff. it wasn't within wwe at all no that's so weird because i have an andy kaufman figure. wrestling figure right and it says wwe well they can claim i mean they have all the money in the world so they can first of all they've changed all their history they've rewritten all their history to make them sound like the good guys because that's what society does right and they yeah they can buy his rights they can do whatever like people want because now they're trying to just like scoop up all of wrestling they're trying to be like we own all of wrestling uh-huh. so they're like oh people like that andy kaufman was involved in wrestling oh hey uh that's us we did that you know <laughs> ah, so wow that's he, he was without outside of the system and now they're trying to yeah and the independence really memphis was an independent was lawler in the system when he did it with Kaufman, he was in Memphis wrestling. He was the king of Memphis. I mean, he was just the he was he was Elvis down there, you know. Yeah. And then eventually, uh, I think in ninety two or ninety three, 
Vince McMahon brought Jerry Lawler into his system and paid him a lot of money, and he's been there ever since. Okay. So money talks. Uh, eventually, everybody's yeah, running yeah, the system. Eventually. Yeah. It's crazy that these big companies kind of own things you love. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's how the world works. Comedy huh? is owned. Wrestling is owned. It looks like such a big landscape from the outside, but when you get into it, it's like, ooh. Few people have this. this yeah, is, this, they own this genre of thing. You just hope the person that owns the thing that owns it is cool and you know, <laughs> and isn't a pushover to some other person that sucks, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did the firing go down? Um. Yeah, I was just I I I had like six matches that I lost. I wasn't perceived as a star. You know, if if you think about wrestling, they when you introduce a character. You want him to like win and be this big star. Remember before I was saying the superstars don't lose to the superstars. Mm -hmm. So I had the, I was under contract with them. They paid me every week, um, and you know they flew me to these towns. And my first match, I lost in like two minutes. So Where was the first match? Virginia, somewhere. Okay. Yeah, it was against my friend Brian Kendrick. And uh, so, is there a feeling of like, oh man, he's my friend. I don't want to take this away from him, or no? It's all for Brian. Job. Yeah. Well, at that time, Brian was kind of on the lower card, and he was being moved up the higher card. Okay. So he he couldn't give a fuck. About, I mean, he could. I'm sure he was like, you know, I I don't want to, have to do this, but I'm going to do this because, of course, it's business, and I'm about to make a lot of money. So it is predetermined whoever wins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, you know, he did give me stuff. I said, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this. He said, of course. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to make you as good, look as good as possible. Yeah. But this match is about me. I'm here to win. I'm going into the main event of the pay-per-view, you know, of the next big event. Okay. And it was. It was for him, which is great for him and awful for me is this was my debut. Uh, and the debut of the character was just to make somebody else look good. And I did that a couple other times. Uh, then they took me off television. Then I started making my own WWE. Then they gave me... So then the writers underneath and this is usually how it works the head guys vince mcmahon kevin dunn uh the, the the guys who have been there forever they don't get my style of whoever but there's the young writers who really liked me mm -hmm. you know and they were all my age and they gave me a show on wwe.com which was before youtube really and so it was the original like and i realized because i had always realized because i had made my career off of the internet like there was no way I went from Chicago to London without there being an internet. It's not like I wasn't on television, you know, like people on the internet had talked and my name got out there to the fact that someone would drive, would fly me to London. Yeah. So I, I started making these shows on WWE.com. Uh, originally, this was, remember this was 10 years ago. It was called What's Cracking with Scotty Goldman. And then eventually when it started getting a little buzzed, they were like, we don't like that name. And I was just like, oh, why not? Like, you know? Yeah. And they, so then they changed it to Good as Goldman. And I was just like, oh, okay, they're changing everything already. And so I started getting a little buzz from the WWE.com show. Uh, and they made their own Facebook called WWE Universe. Uh -huh. They were literally like, this is a Facebook for us. And none of the superstars were doing it, but I was, because I was like, any opportunity to... So I was writing these really funny blogs. Yeah. I was using a lot of comedy uh, to try to get myself some fans within that world. And then they put me back on television. I lost again. Um something happened i don't know what it was in this match where i lost to this guy named umaga where they restarted the match which it doesn't happen that often mm -hmm. so like umaga beat me he went to the back then they played his music and the referee was like hey we're gonna do this match again so like the match that we just had yeah that the fans all saw we're doing it again 
And the fans are all going to be like, we just saw this. Right. So, and none of it's really been ever answered to me. So we did the match again. I came back. I got a call. That was Tuesday. I got a call Friday saying, you're done. And that was my, that was my career. And I'll say this. I've always within that company, I'd always, I was like, I'm going to stay very small and I'm going to work myself. Eventually I'm going to work very hard where I'm going to come up from underneath. I've been doing that my whole career. Stay small and come up from underneath. Don't bust the door open and be like i'm colt i'm gonna be the next star it's like no let's get him from you know let's infiltrate this world yeah and i knew these little mistakes like i I picked my battles and so like i knew i could shout about something but you could either get fired or get a big you know uh push as we would call it yeah and some of those things i just decided not to take that risk and this was and what happened my demise was you know this one little thing that happened that i still don't know why something happened in the match i'm not sure i've been told that the producer looked at me and was just like wait who's this guy he doesn't look like a star and they was like let's get rid of him you know there's a couple other things i don't know what it was i don't it doesn't weigh me down because i've been doing so well for the past 10 years in wrestling so i got a call and and their key so their key their their term that they would say to everybody is uh creative has nothing for you that was their they would tell everyone when they fired them the creative team creative is not that creative well that's kind of the punchline right yeah so there was a creative team of course when i got fired i made a web series called creative has nothing for you (laughs) and it was me and my wrestling friend and he would play the creative team i would play the wrestler nice and we would come up with scenarios in the the quote-unquote pitch meeting and so that's what i do right i make humor with these negative situations yeah when i got fired uh luckily you know i'm i don't call myself a stand-up uh but you've seen me do shtick on stage and I you're can, very funny i yeah. can hold my own right yeah so mick foley who's a professional wrestler he started going out on stand-up tours yeah and i was asked to uh quote unquote open for him i think i might have done a show where he was on it you might have he did yeah. some stuff in new york i know that yeah yeah um and uh i so i opened for him so i would do like 10 or 15 minutes and it was very therapeutic because i would make fun of my WWE career. And this was right after it happened. Yeah. And it was very therapeutic to laugh about Scotty Goldman, the character, to laugh about, you know, the Jewiness of it, to, to laugh about all of it. Let's talk about the Jewiness for a second. Okay. Do you, did you experience either anti-Semitism from that character or uh, people coming out with Jewish pride? What, what, what did you? Not from the character. I had, I had there was some anti-Semitism from some coaches uh, within the system that I received. And, um, you know, I'll, I, I never say the guy's name. Maybe I don't know. One day, maybe I will. I, today, today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It wouldn't but, mean anything to me. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was referred to as Kike Cabana a bunch of times. Jeez. Yeah. No, not Jeez. Kike. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, he was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wasn't. It, I was just sad for that person, and I was just like, it, I was like, I was sad that he was so ignorant that he he thought it was okay to say that like my jewish pride wasn't like what the hell like you know we right. worked this hard or what you know or we've come been oppressed and all that kind of stuff uh, i do have you know i do have pride obviously for the jewish people and for my you know for my religion or my background or whatever it might be but it, for me like that word didn't hurt me as much as it was just sad that this is a man in society who was in our, in our industry who's still in our industry and he doesn't realize that that's not the it's not a right thing to say. It's a right. mean thing to say. Again, a mean person in authority. Yeah. Um, 
And then, yeah, as Goldman, you know, I, I th- I'd like to think that there were some Jewish kids out there who were like, I can't believe there's a Jewish wrestler the same way I was when Barry Horowitz was on television as a kid. Yeah. Um, there was a wrestler named Barry Horowitz. He was also a guy who never won, but I remember him being like, seeing him on television and being like, oh my God, we can be wrestlers. Like, yeah, I got what, what I was telling you at the top here, when I saw your merchandise with the Jewish star on it, I felt like, yeah, cool, good, man. He's owning it and he's like, it made me feel good just to see like um, the fact that you weren't shying away from it mm-hmm. or, or something. Yeah, I do. I have a pride. I have a big pride for the culture and I feel I, I'm, I represent the culture well, not like I'm like the things you think about funny Jewish people. I hope it's, I'm part of that. Yeah. And my sense of humor is part of that. And I love that part of my sense of humor. And I know it, it, it resonates you know, with that, with Jewish humor, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being at the Edinburgh festival last year and just seeing a bunch of wrestling fans wearing Jewish stars, yeah. Scottish kids. I yeah. was just like, cool, man. Yeah. People will tell me they'll go yeah. to, they'll go to church with it on. They'll go, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, I know this is, a, a, it's, you know, whatever, 80 years apart or whatever it might be. But, you know, when I wrestle in Germany and I sell those shirts, it's the best. People, you know, they fly off the fucking shelves. Yeah, people love it. filled with guilt. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so fun that, like, that's a hit shirt over there. I yeah. love that, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been to Germany, but I was just in Austria, which was, yeah, I went with my grandma who had, had to leave when uh, the Anschluss happened. 80 years ago and her family were sent to the camps and Mm. killed and she hadn't been back in 80 years and she was invited by the Austrian government a few months ago and I accompanied her and uh, it was really like first of all terrifying for me to go there because I grew up with all these stories of the place that I I got physically ill before the trip just Mm. from stress and then when I my grandma lives in here in Scotland so we met in Austria and uh, she was like, you know, she's in her 90s and she's, you know, a much obviously much stronger person than I. Hmm. And she, I thought she was going to be so emotional being back. But first of all, she's, she is Austrian, so she doesn't right. um, wear that on her sleeve. And also she was overjoyed to be back. That's nice. And she was happy to talk to everyone in German and to like revisit all these places. She still knew the city without Google Maps or anything was able to take me around wow. and like knew everything like it was yesterday. It was wild. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I did notice that there's like this kind of um, this thing about Jews. There's, it's like it's a strange like, oh, we're so sorry. We're going to be a little extra nice. And then you're like, I don't trust that either. Like that's mm. but then I also felt the other thing. Right. Of course. Too, you know. I've it's but it's you know I, I probably for your grandma it's like whatever you're like they're not even like in their head it's like whatever their heart says yeah and she's just feeling her heart whatever her heart says and her heart says just to like be happy right yeah and love it and like be happy to be back and she knows the pain that her family went through probably and yeah you know her heart's telling her where, however to feel yeah it was a really weird experience for me mm. like my grandma took me to this park that she used to go to when she was a kid and she went to the restroom and I'm sitting on the bench. And I'm watching, and it's all Aryan kids going by. And I'm like, I'm living in Hitler's dream right now. <laughs> and then one Jewish kid went by on a scooter, a Hasidic kid, because there now are some Hasidic people living in Vienna again. And my brain went, oh, he doesn't match. <laughs> like he, He's ruining this perfect Aryan scene. 
And I was like, that's a Hitler thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gotten into it. <laughs> Just by crossing the border, you're, it's molded into. I was like, that must be what Hitler thought when uh, he was sitting at the park. And he goes, he's ruining this perfect Aryan uh, scene. Who, oh, I don't want to know what Hitler was thinking. Yeah. Uh, so it was a weird, the whole thing was weird for me. But yeah, I wonder if some of your fans experience anti-Semitism wearing your shirts. That's a good question um yeah like i said people have worn it to, to catholic events and people will like uh question it. I, people have told me they've been like take off that shirt what does that mean they're like it's for my favorite wrestler and they're like what and they have a little chat about it and i don't know if it goes good or bad but i've heard these stories before wow. throughout the years yeah because I've, I've sold that shirt for um it must be eight or nine years now and my friend wore it on television and since then it's been worn a bunch on television so like it's a known it's like it's kind of like my known shirt mm -hmm. and i was about to take it off of the market and then my buddy wore it on sh on tv and it blew up as my shirt whatever blow up being means yeah. yeah so it's been kind of my trademark for years yeah i want one of those shirts yeah i'll get you one do you make them big of course okay one hour tees.com pro wrestling tees.com awesome i mean i'll ship one out to you if you want but um me and my friend we started a company called pro wrestling tees.com where you can get any size shirt any it's printing on demand in chicago yeah smart the business that's man. right that's right all right, we have a philosopher here. Uh, how do you feel? Do you feel ready for that? Warmed up? <laughs> to be fair, I'm. I don't even know like what it means. What what means? Like, so he's gonna he's a guy that breaks down stuff. Oh no no! I'm Alex sends me a philosopher for us to discuss. Somebody who has something in common with you, which we'll find out what connection. But he's from have. like this philosopher is from the 1500s or something. Could be. I don't know. It could be from the 1990s. I don't or, or today. I okay, don't, you've had. I don't know why I picked the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> it's, Kurt, it's Kurt Cobain. Yeah, <laughs> it could be. It could be anybody. Okay, so the philosopher that Alex picked for you is somebody named Karl von Kloschewitz. You ever heard of him? Oh, the Von Kloschewitz. Sounds like a wrestler, doesn't it? Or, or Von Kloschewitz. Von Kloschewitz. Suvitz. Von Kloschewitz. Keep going. Keep yeah, going. it sounds like a wrestler. Sounds like one of the ones you said there were like four of them. The Von Erics, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good memory. Um, I says, would have forgotten that if I were you. Oh, yeah? If I knew nothing about anything about wrestling and like a name just flew out. Well, just a, they reminded me of the those Facebook guys. The, you know, you ever seen the movie... The Facebook. Facebook guys. Yeah, they were like these Facebook Vaughn brothers that were like uh Vince Vaughn again? Is this I what is this? <laughs> I don't know. Theo Vaughn. Theo Vaughn Eric. Um so Alex writes, because Colt Cabana is a wrestler, I picked a philosopher of war. It's interesting. Do you see wrestling as war? No, they see that right away. I'm like, he just thinks wrestling. I think it's art. It's it's more Shakespeare. It's it's Shakespeare. Yeah. It's not um, it's not about violence, especially the style that I do. And I do comedy wrestling. Uh -huh. I'm a comedian in the wrestling ring. And so it's never about hurting anybody. It's about making people laugh. Is there a war element to the to the whole thing? Or I, I mean, I guess good versus evil. If you're really telling that ultimate story, yeah, I guess you're going into battle to see who wins. But, I mean, remember, I do alternative wrestling. Right, it's very different than the mainstream wrestling. So it's it's what I do is very weird, but I get it. Yeah, I get it. You think wrestling, and that's why we're trying to change the perception of wrestling from two guys or two girls just beating the fuck out of each other to telling this wonderful story 
um, and wonderful because I don't think war is wonderful. So if, mm-hmm. by wrestling, we're telling this wonderful story uh, with on a stage, and our stage is the wrestling ring. Yeah. Why do you think you gravitated towards wrestling then over acting? Because of the of the athleticism. Yeah. Because of the sport of it. Are there are there any other sports I'm trying to think that are are a combination of acting and yeah. and athleticism? So here's what I liked growing up. I liked American Gladiators a lot. Uh-huh. And I liked uh Roller Jam. What's Roller Jam? So th- it, it was taken from Roller Derby. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's there two teams and they're in characters. This this was on like I don't remember it was on like Spike TV or something. They were the equivalent of Spike TV, and it was they would roll, they would rollerblade around a track, and there was a, an element of sport to it, but it was definitely characters. And I liked, uh, well, that doesn't blood like blood sport to me is uh-huh. like the, the best movie ever. It's like these characters, and then in a tournament, uh, and then there's fighting, but there's also just different you know storylines going on. So interesting, yeah. So yeah. otherwise, I would have been an American Gladiator or a roller jammer. Were those real considerations for a minute? Well, by the time I was 18, they were gone. They were gone. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's a summary on uh, Von Klosowitz. Von Klosowitz defines war as a duel to bend a nation to your will. Because the true nature of war is violence, we must not shy away from brutality. It would be nice if disarming an enemy were possible without blood. So in that case, uh, wrestling is disarming an enemy without blood. What if what if what if wars were just uh, fought out in the ring, but but <laughs> but but theatrically? Yeah. Well, some there is blood in wrestling. Is there? Really? I bled a lot of times, and that's part of the theater of it. So I guess it's making more sense. Now. <laughs> okay. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I yeah. mean I mean, sometimes, right, it, it should be like, it in the 40s, it was like an exhibition of like, who's the better grappler. And then some point, in, you know, there was these wrestlers like the Sheik uh, and Abdul the Butcher and all these wrestlers that kind of like changed it from this athletic contest to just like people beating the shit out of each other and like becoming blood bloodbaths. And that was a part of it. Wow. It would be nice if disarming an enemy were possible without blood, but that is a fantasy. Diluting war with mercy is in itself cruel because it prolongs the inevitable when you are unflinchingly violent to your opponent conflict will end sooner both of you will feel the horror of war and want to end it the more passionate army will win making emotion the strongest weapon of all this is why most defending armies are victorious they will do anything to protect themselves war is not just a fight between generals but a fight with each general's mind to stay on target. So, gotta have so many thoughts about this. Um, what I, what I do is we do this in a fake way, right? So we pretend that this is happening, but at the end of the day, no one's getting hurt. And so it's so sad to to hear this philosophy of there will be people dying because of this theory, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just like, yeah, you gotta kill everybody. Yeah. So you're the so you can live. Right. And that just makes me very sad. And then the other mentality is when so I'll take this back to wrestling is when I was in WWE, like there was people I I'm again, my hatred of authority, I would not kiss anyone's ass. Yeah. I just wanted to be me. And I watched people kiss ass and 
and, and I felt bad for them. And, and there was two different people that kissed ass. I remember two instances of two different specific wrestlers. One went on to be a millionaire and a champion. The other one got fired because they kissed ass too much. And everyone was like, you're weird. You're kissing ass. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, um, so w- when talking about this philosophy, it seems like it, it, it seems like that Wolf of Wall Street business mentality of like, we have to take out our enemy so we can be the most successful, you know, i.e. whatever, winning the war. Yeah. And um, it's weird. I, I don't have that mentality of like, take out everybody in wrestling so I can be the champion and I can be the number one successful person. I just want to do what I like. Um, but I do hate that, like, this they're talking about war and like, this guy is like saying like, yep, you got to murder everyone so you and your family can live. I did also feel there's like a connection when he says, this is why the most most defending armies are victorious. I feel like in life, you're the defending army. The way you've described your philosophy on things, it's there is a lot of like defense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sure. Like I have, yeah. In the, in the uh, I don't, would it be the game of life? The, the, what's the board game with all where you, I think that's called life. Is it life? There's one like with, there's also one where there's armies and stuff. Risk. Risk. Yeah. 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 I, which I haven't played a lot, but I, right. I do send up all these barriers so I don't get fucked too much, you know? Yeah. And that especially happened when I got fired from WWE is, you know, I've told people that I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. I put all my eggs in the WWE basket. So like I have all these different outlets now of like making money or whatever it is or, or, or being satisfied. So if something goes down, I'll have all these other things. Yeah. And that I've never thought of it this way, but I, that would be a war strategy is setting up all these barriers so I just don't have one barrier. If it gets knocked down, I'm done for. I've set up all these barriers. So if one barrier goes down, I can hide behind seven other barriers. Right, yeah. And just the way you, you described your strategies in, in, uh, in what you do business-wise, mm-hmm. I thought you, were, you sounded a lot like a defensive player, more than an offensive player. Yes. Right? So, so here, here's a <laughs> – why, why are you laughing? I'm no, it's just, just uh, it's kind of fun that we can – you know, I know my story, but – you're kind of it's all coming out of you the first time you're kind of hearing the whole grasp of it all yeah and then you can you've taken away what i've said i it's hard for me to understand what my personality is like i think just saying it but you listening to it and hearing it and then being able to put it towards this philosophy it's interesting to me and maybe it's a, a nervous laughter or something. You know, no, 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 no. I'm I'm just, just, <laughs> I was just curious if I was unintentionally funny. No, oh, <laughs> it's it's more it's fun. Like, yeah, yeah, it's fun just hearing you connect those. Oh, that's why I laugh. Thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I feel flattered. Um, okay, so here's a paragraph: How in war our judgment can be clouded with hesitation. Determination is courage in the face of moral danger. I don't even know what that means. All right, so let's let's start with that <laughs> determination. I know that word. Yeah. It's courage in the face of what? A moral danger. Moral danger. This is, I mean, we're not even breaking. We're literally trying to have to break it down to understand what it is. Right, right. That's how to, it always is. Is that how it is? Yeah, oh, don't okay. worry. <laughs> Sometimes I have people on the show and they're like, oh, I feel stupid. I'm like, everybody. Oh. I mean, nobody knows what the hell these guys are. That's yeah. the whole point of this. We try to figure out what the hell they're talking okay. about. Okay. Well, I know I'm stupid, so <laughs> same here. So. Yeah. I don't feel bad by the feeling of feeling stupid. Yeah. Determination is courage in the face of moral danger. All right. So, uh, um, I think the big question is what's moral danger? So, someone's coming at you with a situation where you don't know whether to go left or right, 
right? So where your morals stand. Is moral danger in your life story like losing who you are to WWE? Would would that be moral danger? Would be yes, or kissing that kissing their asses right. so I could get where I want to get. That would be moral danger. That's a moral danger for me. Yes. So how how courage is? Can you read it again? Yeah, determination is courage. So determination is courage in the face of moral danger. <laughs> so are we determined to do something? Maybe maybe that is it. Maybe your de- your determination in that scenario is. Um, so I'm determined to be a better person. So I have to have the you have courage. To be strong not to fall into what happened to those two guys. Not that you to, right, not to kiss people's asses to try to get where I want to get. I'll go with that. All right. <laughs> this is created. Oh, they're going to tell us now. This is created by the intellect, but it is not an act of the intellect. It is an act of temperament. I don't even know what that okay. means. Temperament. Yeah, I know what temperament. What's your temper? Like, yeah, like what? how uh, restraint, temperament. It's like, you know, do you have a, do you have a good temperament? Would be like, do you have a good, um, shit, how do I put this? I know what it means, but I'm, I always have a hard time describing Would it. I? If I like, like if a dog has a good temperament, right? You'd be like, oh, don't worry, you can pet him. He's got a good temperament. Right. You know, he can restrain himself okay. or whatever. So th- this is created by the intellect, but it is not an act of the intellect. It is an act of the temperament. So it has nothing to do with our brain. Uh-huh. So our brain brings up this idea, but it does have nothing to do with the brain. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, well, temperament is maybe, like I said before, our heart, like I was saying with you, with your grandma, right? Yeah. So it's not our brain, it's our heart. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. And so, right, because we follow our hearts, we, th- we, th- we think it's a thing, but it's not. It's our heart. So um, whether when I'm in that situation of do I kiss corporate ass, uh, my heart always tells me, oh, that's cringeworthy. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, it's not an intellectual decision as much as it comes from, like, the soul or the right. heart. Or, yeah. Uh, intelligence alone is not courage. We often see that the most intelligent people are... I don't even know how to say this word, man. It'd be funny if it was idiots. The opposite I, of courage. All right, right, I'm going to spell it. You tell me what it is. I-R-R-E-S-O-L-U-T-E. Let's look it up. <laughs> Here it is. Irresolute. Showing or feeling hesitancy or uncertain. Okay, so that makes the opposite. Uh, that's the opposite of courage, I guess. Uncertainty. Let's read it one more time. Intelligence is not courage. Intelligence alone is not courage. We often see that the most intelligent people are hesitant or un, unsure of themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because if you're very smart, you're more calculated. You start breaking it down too much. Yeah, it's like you, yeah, but those people are way smarter than I. Like, but like, maybe in a certain way, though. I always think like Bill Burr comes to mind right now. Like he's a really clever guy, but he's always the first one to say how unsure he is on everything. Mm. I think that it's the idiots who are always going in certain, you know? They're like, I got it. Mm. And it's because you're not thinking it through enough. So I think uncertainty is definitely a sign of intellect. Mm. You disagree? I don't know. I'm, my brain hurts now. <laughs> really? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> tell, me, tell me why. Tell me where you're at with it. Oh, I mean, we haven't talked about it. It's just, uh, so I, I also don't like reading. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And for this reason, like in my head, everything is like as hard as this. So I have to break stuff down. Yeah. And um, 
I have like undiagnosed ADHD, I think, and I think I'm a little also dyslexic a little bit. I have the diagnosed one. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, it's because you weren't lazy. You were not was, as lazy to go I, to the doctor. I was forced. Oh, okay. Fair enough. And I always like, um, I always say this, like I always had it as a kid and whenever I read, I just would, I would just go somewhere else. Me too. And then my parents got me tested and I was like, oh, this is a test I better do really well. And so I would concentrate really, really hard. But in everyday <laughs> life, you don't concentrate really, really hard, you know? But it shows that on some level it was up to you. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but it should be everyday life, like just the casual happening. I don't want it yeah. to be like, okay, determination is courage in the face. Because <laughs> this is like... What we're doing now is what I have to really do. <laughs> yeah. And ev- like in every, the words aren't as hard. Well, well, let's just try and discuss it in terms of a more broad idea. Intelligence alone is not courage. I think that part by itself is uh, pretty obvious. I mean, you never, you ever seen like a movie where the guy is really courageous? He's not usually like a brainiac, right? Intelligence alone is not courage. Okay. Like, right. Liam Neeson, whatever, right. just it, goes into it. They just go into it. Right. You know, courage is not coming really from, from your intellect, usually. It's coming from, like, adrenaline or whatever. You're sure. Like. We often see that the most intelligent people are the ones who are unsure of themselves. But then this is, like, sounds like you're saying the most intelligent person are the people that are uncertain. So, And, and that kind of sounds like the Jewish stereotype of, like, uh, I don't know, what are we, you know, like, what are we going to do? Well, yeah, like, the whole Talmud is just, like the brilliant rabbis arguing over like they, they're not sure like i think it means this ah, it doesn't mean that it means this you yeah. know like I, I think it definitely is like uncertainty does denote some intelligence I, I will say if you're able and i don't know if this is the same thing but if you're a person who's able to to say to admit like you don't know and that there could be another way and it's not this way only which mm-hmm. happens a lot in wrestling. This is the way you have to do it. Uh, wrestling's subjective. Uh, it's an art, you know? Like, yeah. people are like, this is how you do it. Probably the same with comedy. This is how you do it. Right. People that are, are open will always have more of my respect because they're able to, like, see that it's not just their way, especially on subjective things that people think are not subjective. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, all right. Since in the rush of events, a man is governed by feelings, the intellect needs to arouse the quality of courage which then sustains it in action. I think that's just what we were saying with the Liam Neeson thing. Like, it's just, you know, you're in those situations, you, you, your body takes over your, your quality of courage. Yeah, sure. I'll agree. Yeah. <laughs> the role of determination is to limit the agonies of doubt and the pearls of hesitation when the motives for action are inadequate. Wow, that one was a lot. Yeah. Gonna... So the role of determination is to limit the agonies of doubt and the pearls of hesitation when motives for action are inadequate. So it's, the role of determination, so, so you don't want to have so much doubt or hesitation. Your determination is based if you can kind of plunge through that. Yeah. But only when the motives for action are inadequate. So I don't understand if, the, if there's inadequate actions. Like the motive is inadequate? Like the motives for the action are inadequate. Like you said, the plunging through it is the determination. And the agonies of doubt are like, you know, the intellect telling you, like, I don't know. And, you know, it becomes agonizing. Should I do it? Should I not do it? Mm-hmm. Um, 
The Perils of Hesitation. Oh, I said pearls, sorry. Okay. The Perils of Hesitation when the motives for action are inadequate. Oh, the perils is like it's something, perils is scary, right? Like it's something bad, um, dangerous, right? Perils of hesitation. Uh, the danger of hesitation when the motives for the action are inadequate. But I would say it's when, when the motives are right. That, yeah, that's, that's the when part the role of determination. But maybe you can't determine that they're adequate because you're not using your intellect. Mm. That must be it. Like if you were thinking it through, you might figure out that they were inadequate, right? Like if you know. if you run to do something, uh, you're not. It may not be the right thing to do. It may be the inadequate thing to do. Like if you jump into action, you don't have time to de- determine if whether or not what you're doing is the right response. Yeah, I get, but you're not gonna, if you're determined to do something, you're not going to know what the... Yeah, I guess that's why it's inadequate, because you don't have time to evaluate if the motives are adequate. You don't have time to like okay. to weigh it. I'm guessing, but I mean, that's I'll my go, best guess. <laughs> By the way, that's the whole show. I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I'm, I'm with that. <laughs> uh, anyone who feels the urge to undertake such a task must dedicate himself for his laborers as he would prepare for a pilgrimage to distant lands. Okay. So, they, I mean, they have to be all in, is what he's saying. Yeah. So anyone who's, who's doing this has to be all in. I think so. I think that's a good way of putting it. Distant land pilgrimage, that's an all-in situation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jumping on a plane to wrestle in London for like what was it 80 bucks? 125 bucks. I mean, that was heaven. <laughs> this is this sound, you know, like they're talking about like do or die and you're in like that. I would have, you know, I love to do that. This yeah. is like would you move to Russia to wrestle uh, you know, full-time for 2 years and not know anyone. And I was like, "All right, here we go. Let's do it." Did you do that? No, I'm just saying, no, okay. I would never would. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like that's the ultimate undertake, you know, or dedicating yourself to do that, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh he, I'll say he or she or them. Okay. They, they must I'm going to change this from he to they. Okay. They must prepare no time or effort, fear no earthly power or rank and rise above his or her or their own variety in order to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me whoever you look up to. I added that part also. Right. So, yeah, I think this is, again, just spare no time or effort, fear no earthly power or rank, rise above their own vanity in order to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which seems like I'm not a a very much religious person, if at all, but it seems like that's, like, based on, like, you know, the gods or the higher religious people that we look up to is like they know the truth but he's saying fear no oh fear no earthly power just like feel feel no earth fear no earthly power is your um your uh vince mcmahon okay that's your earthly power you must feel no fear nothing and nobody no rank no power or rank damn that's perfect fit for you because your whole thing is with power or rank and authority, right? And um, you must fear none of that and rise above your own vanity. Your vanity, you know, what vanity is right. Like uh, to have, you know, show business is vanity, right? <laughs> you have to rise above your own vanity in order to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, I think it's. It, I think this works perfectly when you compare this paragraph to what you went through. 
but I don't like the idea of tell the whole truth. I, I think if I can change that, what that means in my own mind, because again, that's like saying like, I know this is what it is for a fact. When they say that I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, this is a fact. But it's your truth. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think as long as we change the narrative or whatever it is to be like the, so I could tell the idea of what I, of what I believe, which I guess is the same as truth, but it sounds harder when it says this is the truth. Well, I mean, we all have our own version of the truth, mm -hmm. right? Like you can have your heart a hundred percent set on the fact that you're being honest and tell your truth. Right. Might not be the truth. Right. You know? <laughs> right. That's what I mean, which it sounds a little hard. Yeah. Um, but if you think in that way, I think. Maybe if we change the word the to a. A truth. <laughs> a truth. Some and Nothing truth. but a truth. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So, so that's interesting. I guess uh, determinism, according to this whole thing, really kind of, to me, it seems like a lot of what you went through in your own personal struggle with, with getting to the top and not selling out who you were, not selling out your values and not maybe, sorry. No, that's, I, I always tell people, yeah, stay true to yourself. Like I believe like, yeah, I might not have been John Cena or whatever, but it's been very important that I've been true to myself and who I am as a person. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't lose yourself along the way and you easily could have, mm. and you saw it happen to other people. Right. And I stayed with it and I've gotten to the best possible place I can with my beliefs and believing in my heart, which I think is what a lot of this talked about. Your story really does resonate as like a spiritual journey to me. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's very much like you came out on the other side enlightened. Hopefully. Yeah. That's what it sounds. I like. hope so. <laughs> do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I it's I, I hate I I'll do a lot of sh podcasts or radio or whatever, and like I always say, like I hate that because people will always say like, "Oh, Colt, you're bitter about the WWE." I'll get that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I I don't think I I think there's a little like a little of the bitterness drives me to become the better performer and wrestler and businessman that I am today, and I'm proud and happy about that. But I always just look at it like my story is like a before WWE and an after WWE. And, you know, I don't, you know, because it's the biggest thing in our industry, like there's, like I said, like all, I've had so much success after it, but like, that's the middle point. Like that's the, it's the pre and the posts is it, that thing. It has to be. I think, I mean, you know, in I mean, up until now me. anyway, I yeah. mean, it's the most significant piece of your story right now, professionally speaking. Anyway, yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, it's, you know, people love to, to, accuse other people of being bitter i've seen it so many times in comedy like it's like oh you're bitter well it's a lot more nuanced than that you mm -hmm. know it's bitter is just like almost a way of um tying a neat little bow on it and uh trying to marginalize the way somebody feels i don't think it's bitter i think you've gone through something that most people never go through it with extreme highs and extreme lows and it has an impact on you mm. and if it didn't you'd probably be oblivious to to your own feelings in life. I mean, are you supposed to come out of a situation where, you know, I had a similar thing happen in um, a few years ago. I was invited to have dinner with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks uh, at Carl Reiner's house. And I know that it was I was being sized up to see if they were going to try and help me. I can tell you but it would take a long time to explain that. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was on under the microscope. I was, it was a test. I mean, I, I, in wrestling terms, I get it. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I was there for three and a half hours and I gave it my all and I put my heart into it and I made them laugh a lot. 
And by all my accounts, it went really well. And it ended really well. And the last thing uh, Mel Brooks said when I was leaving is, this, we'll be seeing a lot of you. And then I never heard another word from them. Never another word. And when I tried to reach out, the answers I got from the people you know, that protect them were pretty cold. And it was like, stay away. We don't want anything to Jeez. do with you. And um, it crushed me. It, it sent me into a depression. It's like, it's like you know, almost like the girl of your dreams and you fantasized about her since you were a kid and you, you finally get to, together with her and you make out with her and she's like, next time sex. And you're like, yeah. And then you never hear from her again. That's, that's the, you know, so it's, it affected me. It, it took me a long time to make peace with that. And everyone was like, you should just be so happy that you got that opportunity to hang out with those guys. Well, yeah, I mean, childhood heroes of mine, sure. And, and that is something I'm grateful for. And it's something I had to work hard to become grateful for because I had to really reframe the whole situation to appreciate it and to feel that gratitude because the feeling of rejection was so powerful. But also there, you'll, you'll have another 20 years in your, as a performer and you can't just wait for them to, to say you can perform. Right. You have to continue your job and doing what you like and becoming a better performer. I felt like I was rejected by comedy that night. Like, from from that night i felt like this is what i got i'm giving it i'm giving it to you i'll pull out all the tricks in my book and if that's not impressive it's almost like comedy stamped stamped my file rejected you know that's how i felt and that's what people in the wwe when they get fired and then they stop wrestling mm -hmm. there's two different paths there's the people that been like ah they told me we're we're I'm done. Wrestling has rejected me. Like, I, you know, as I said before, wrestling has rejected me. I'm, and then there's people who'd be like, no, like, you know, whatever, man. Like, I, this is what I love to do. And they can't just reject me. And they go on moving forward. And that's our story. Yeah. You know, um, at a certain point, you're like, look, this is what I want to do. They don't control that. They may control the industry <laughs> behind it for well, now. Yeah. But it's fun that we're at the fringe and that's what this. The, what the fringe is based off of is being on the fringe of the arts festival and being like, oh, fine, we can't be in the arts festival. We'll find somewhere to perform. Right. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, essentially, that's, you know, my career is, yeah, is on the fringe. It's all the rejects yeah. still, still out there making art. Trying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to be able to, uh, to meet people like you here. Um, we have three quotes that we round off the show with, and I always ask the guests to read them. I read them, right? Yeah. Are you comfortable with that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they don't look as intimidating, to be honest. No, they're, they're pretty quick. Men are always more inclined to pitch their estimates of the enemy's strength too high than too low. Such is human nature. Um, okay. I think I get this. Yeah, me too. Men are always more inclined to pitch their S. So they just, well, they'll always assume that the person is uh, the best as opposed to really shit. Yeah. And, and such is human nature, but sometimes we'll always find out like, Oh, these, they didn't know anything or this person isn't as, as godly as we think. Right. And I, I have to do that a lot. Vince McMahon is a thing. I went in going, when I went into that meeting with him, I'm like, he's just a human being. He's just a human being. He's, he shits just like you. He takes out, you know, like yeah. the same fucking thing. And um, yeah, I think so. Well, well, essentially it's saying we give people too much credit, isn't it? Yeah. That they don't deserve. <laughs> and, and our enemies too much credit, especially like, 
we give people it's i think it's perfect analogy with what you said with vince mcmahon it's like um not he's necessarily your enemy but just somebody who you feel you're up against and we always like put them on this mountain and a lot of the time it's just our false estimations and i guess that's because of low self-esteem um or just fear or or the aura that we hold people in maybe that society or somebody else has given to this person they put them in this aura celebrities are one of them and, and that's what i what i think when i think of this is when i say to myself well i can even think of this in different ways but when i say to myself like hey uh and this has happened to me so it's happened in both scenarios uh when i meet someone like super famous famous or whatever it's just like uh don't kiss their ass play it cool just like be a treat them like they're a normal person and that's how they wanted to be treated and also when i see people like being weird to me of like asking too many questions or you know or like mm-hmm. and i'm just like well now we can't have a normal conversation and be human beings because you're obviously holding me in to you know higher regards to higher regards right. and so it's not an even playing field and the same goes with dating actually too and and that's why i i can't date fans uh just because i and I'm not saying I'm some megastar of wrestling, but like if I'm not, you know, I'm not Cole Cabana. I'm, you know, in real life, I'm Scott. I'm just this normal human being. But mm-hmm. if you, if you start Googling me and, and you hold me in this higher, or not Googling, but if you're a fan, you come to the shows, you see me on a stage lifted. Yeah. It's just, I feel it's not an even playing field. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you could always destroy people's perception of you <laughs> after dating them for a little while. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a whole nother podcast, I think. <laughs> Uh, although our intellect always longs for clarity and certainty, our nature often finds uncertainty fascinating. Hmm. Interesting. I think that's true. Yeah, I think the uncertainties of the world are what captivate us. Yeah, how can you not find that fascinating? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, actually last year at the Fringe, I had uh, the comedian Jamoan on okay. this show, and we were talking about the idea of God and why, why, what it would it be like if we all knew that God did or didn't exist. And he was saying, I mean, the beauty of it is that we don't know. Right. Because if we do, if we knew either way, it would throw off the whole balance of the world. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's the uncertainty that holds the magic. And it's this feeling that we, we really want certainty that makes it magical. Because if we didn't care to know for sure on anything, then uncertainty would have no value. What's the wonder of the world? I think in Niagara Falls, right? That's a wonder of the world. Okay. Is that incorrect or correct? I, I mean, sure. The seven, correct. the seventh wonders of the world. Oh, I don't know if it's one of the seven, but it, I, I, or the, it's okay. definitely a pretty big one. Yeah. Well, the, the, <laughs> the pyramids, right? The pyramids is one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, which is right. That's what makes it so cool. That's why we go Stonehenge, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. That's why we go and we look at it because it's just, like, we're so intrigued. Yeah. How did this happen? We want to know, right? Right, right. Um, and then last but not least, a conqueror is always a lover of peace, which is interesting because I feel a conqueror is someone who will go to war. I mean, history, history has told us that. Yeah. I don't know if I can get on board with that one. <laughs> I, I, I think I think what he must mean is that uh, is an ideal kind of look at it, optimistic look that they're conquering in order to make peace, right? Like, like I, I think like maybe in their head they're like, if I could just make things exactly how I want them, they'll be like that idea of Hitler. I was gonna say, the, is Hitler a conqueror? He, he is. He was a conqueror. Yeah. Um, 
just that that feeling I had in the park with that Aryan perfect Aryan scene must have been to him peace, you know, like, and he must have been like, let me get rid of all these things that stand in the way of his idea of quote unquote peace, and and that might be where the conquering was motivated from. But I I would disagree that that's true, you know. Yeah, that's so interesting. Or I mean, it doesn't say yeah. That's that's an odd one to me. Yeah, but that's a quote from this philosopher. Well, you know what? From from the very beginning when we talked about this philosopher, you said you were a man of peace. So perhaps in your conquering, <laughs> sure. <laughs> in wrestling, it might be true. What a bow tie! What a tie around! <laughs> it all comes together. It's a forced ending, like an Edinburgh show. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Oh man. Well, thanks for having me, Danny. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's super fun hanging out with you and uh, really, really interesting hearing your story. And uh, I feel like a, a kinship here. With yeah, you as do talking. I. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to dive so much into philosophy, though. Um, it just hurt my brain to like piece it all together, which is probably good for my brain. Yeah, but I just like watching dumb comedy and. <laughs> and, <laughs> and dumb tv shows i am dumb america is what i am i don't i don't i'm not gonna give you that because i don't think you are i mean all this stuff i've seen you do and even when i did your show you did kind of play like i like a dummy but i, you, I play a character yeah. right right but you are pretty clever and uh i mean just talking to you i mean and hearing your your path that you and your and your strategies of where you got to where you got are all very clever. I mean, I always say to people on this show, I mean, this I believe that all these ideas are are very attainable to us. There are our ideas, but they're put in a way which I think has to do with keeping keeping the poor uneducated. Um, they're put in a way that they're not accessible to the everyman. And then like what I try to do on this show is unpack these ideas and and realize these are these are all thoughts we've had already. They're not so much more smart than we are. They're just uh, they're just talking fancy. Right. We don't want to. <laughs> we don't want to. Uh, or something about our enemy's strength is too high and too low. We, yeah. We we let them. We let their strength think that they're too high. Yeah. We're, you're right. Yeah. We're building them up too high. It's man. Back to that quote. Yeah. <laughs> now there's a good bow tie. There it is. <laughs> Thanks so much. Hey, right, bud. That's our show for today, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please, if you can, make a donation, moderndayphilosophers.net. We'd appreciate it. Or just write into me. I love hearing from you, thecomical at yahoo.com. I'll be reading some more emails next time we do the show. So write in, and yours may get read on the air. And, of course, of course, thank you to Colt Cabana, the fantastic Mr. Colt Cabana. And uh, you can catch him at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, if you're in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, and that will be taking place at the Monkey Barrel. Monkey Barrel Comedy. I did the show last year. It's really fun. They show wrestling clips, old wrestling clips, and they have comedians come in and you comment on them. And I don't think we really explained in the interview what, what it is, but that's that's what it is. You make jokes, and, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's front, in front of a live audience. And it will be Colt Cabana and John Hastings at 2300 hours, I guess that's 11 p.m. That one's not hard to calculate. 
at the Monkey Barrel. Get tickets at edfringe.com. Edfringe.com. Go see Colt Cabana if you're in Scotland. And you can also see me at my new exciting, fantastic show, which will be happening at the Underbelly. I'm very excited I'll be at the Underbelly. I always wanted to be at the Underbelly. The first year I ever went to Fringe, I went and saw Eugene Merman at the Underbelly, and he was so cool, and he was so funny, and it was such a good show. And I remember being like, one day I want to be at the Underbelly, and I actually will be this year. So it's very exciting. I'll be in the Clover Room at the Underbelly doing my new show, Tipping the Scales. It's a one-man show. I talk about being overweight. I talk about my friendship with Ralphie. I talk about my relationship with Kylie. I mean, there's so much in it. And if you're a fan of this show, I think you'd really, really enjoy it, even if not. And that's taking place at a more complicated time. That one's taking place at 17.30, which is 5.30. And that will be at the Underbelly Bistro Square in the Clover Room. Again, you can get tickets on edfringe.com. Check out my show. Check out Colt Cabana's show if you're going to be in the UK or in Europe. Come and take a trip for a weekend or a week to the Edinburgh Festival. It's a lot of fun. If you've never been, if you have been, any, any combination of those things, come and see us. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Please, if you get a chance, and I know it can be a pain, but it takes two seconds, go on iTunes, leave five stars and a nice comment. I don't think we've had anybody do that in a few months. It would really help out a lot. All right, that's it, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you again to Alex Fasella, the man who finds us these great philosophers and puts together the quotes and paragraphs. A good man, a funny man. Check him out if you're in New York City. And of course, to Logan Heftel, who masters the audio, who does such a great job all the time. And this was a tough one. You may have heard a little crackle here and there or shuffle of the microphones because we recorded it remotely in Scotland in an old apartment building and the wires were making noise or whatever in the microphones. So we did our best with the audio on this one, but Logan made it a million times better. Thank you, Logan Heftel. And I also just want to give a shout out to Logan for being such a great friend. I always have great heart to hearts with him. And last year, I remember him telling me before the Edinburgh show, like I was, I was nervous about it. And he said, don't be nervous. This is what, this is what you do. This is what you love to do. He's like, this is, this is what it's all about. This is not just fun. It's the most fun. And I was like, you're right. It's the most fun. And it really helped me through. And I was talking to him this year and I was telling him, you hear the doggies in the background? I, I was telling him, I'm like, look, I'm, my wife is pregnant. I didn't even want to leave her. And she told me, no, you have to go. You have to do the show. And it's it's just so much on me. What if it doesn't go well? You know, it costs a lot. We're putting a lot on credit cards. And it's scary. And I want it to go so well. And I'll be all alone for a month in Scotland without her. And he said, well, look at it as an adventure, man. Look at it as you're about to have a kid. Right now, this is your last really like solo adventure. This is the last time you're going on a trip and you don't have a kid. And I don't know why, but that just like blew my mind when he said it. It's It really is my last solo adventure. This is it. I got to just go and try and make something in my life so this kid coming into the world has something. It's a lot of pressure, but it's also exciting. And it is the most fun. It's why I got into this. It's what I do. So anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, everybody who makes donations. 
for those of you who make donations or write in the comical at yahoo.com or leave comments and five stars on iTunes. Take good care of yourselves, everybody. Until next time, when I join you for another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Bye for now.